Solus Christus, where does it do? What does it do? It leads us in some directions that uh, I think you could even anticipate. But let me read for you what you have on your outline, which I have taken this from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. It's the Cambridge Declaration that was uh, put out in 1996. And it's worth the reading, and I'm going to do so. Uh, opening paragraph says this. As evangelical faith becomes secularized, its interests have been blurred with those of the culture. The result is a loss of absolute values, permissive individualism, and a substitution of wholeness for holiness, recovery for repentance, intuition for faith, feeling for belief, chance for providence. That uh, was a there a typo in there? Uh, not change for providence, chance. Chance for providence. And immediate gratification for enduring hope. Christ and his cross have moved from the center of our vision. We affirm that our salvation is accomplished by the mediatorial work of the historical Christ alone. His sinful life and substitutionary atonement alone are sufficient for our justification and reconciliation to the Father. We deny that the gospel is preached if Christ's substitutionary work is not declared and faith in Christ and his work is not solicited. I want to ask that you would particularly would key on that opening statement as evangelical faith uh, becomes secularized, that little opening paragraph I'm going to come back full circle at the end, and I'm hoping that you will see what, how I have as to use that opening paragraph and the concepts there to be our conclusion. Let me read to you number 62 of the 95 theses that Luther nailed to the church door, the church in, in Wittenberg, on October the 31st, 1517. Listen, this is number 62. The true treasure of the church is the most holy gospel of the glory and grace of God. Let's proceed. I want to make, take us along these following statements, which I'm I've attempted to so set them up as to make us come to grips. Why is it that it is solus Christus, Christ alone? Was there, were there competing Christs? Why do we have to say alone? All right, let's proceed. Christ alone means that the Lord Jesus Christ stands at the center of the gospel. Listen to Martin Luther. He says, Therefore, one must teach as follows. Behold, Christ died for you. He took sin, death, and hell upon himself and submitted himself. But nothing could subdue him, for he was strong. He rose from the dead, was completely victorious, and subjected everything to himself. He did all this in order that you might be free from it and lord over it. If belief 
is this. If you believe this, you have it, Martin. If you believe, you have it. Excuse me. Luther, and this is from one of the, uh, one of the books on Luther, and it's, it's the book, The Legacy of Luther, and it's in the chapter by Robert Godfrey, and he says, and I quote, Luther recovered for the church from the Bible the centrality of the person and work of Christ in redemption. Now, why is it that Jesus Christ is supreme? Why is it that it is solus Christus? Because Jesus has gospel supremacy as a person. Jesus, the necessity, the necessity of Christ's death. What we're going to see unfold here, and then just a little bit later, I'm going to take us into Hebrews chapter 2, which is probably as close as we can get to the definitive passage on the necessity of Christ's death, is that Jesus Christ is fully man. This is why his work is necessary for salvation. No one else is qualified, was qualified or is. He is fully God. Christ, Jesus Christ, is the only one qualified to meet our need. No other Savior. Jesus Christ has gospel supremacy because of his work. Now, here's where we need now to go to Hebrews in chapter 2 and verses 5 through 16. Now, I'm going to give you the fast track on this passage and uh, there's something to be said, of course, for the slower track on it and working through it. We did that some years back, late 90s, working through Hebrews. But I want you to look there. I'm going to read the passage first, and then I'm going to quick step us through Hebrews 2, 5 through 15. But I want you to know while we're doing this that this is the crucial passage in answering the question, why did God be Come, man. Why is Christ alone the only one qualified to be our Savior? Let's read, let me read the passage, then we'll look at it a little more closely. Verse 5 For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. Putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him. He left nothing outside his control. At present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he... Look at the language of necessity here. It's, you see it all through this passage. It was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect 
through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who fear through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now let's get a grip on this passage because there are about six or so important movements of thinking through this passage in answering the question, why Christ? Why was he qualified? Why was it necessary for him to die? Uh, just a little brief, uh, well, we've got to get some kind of momentum going to get into the fifth verse of Hebrews chapter 2. What the writer of Hebrews is doing, he is calling all Christians, his readers, to their spiritual senses. These Hebrew Christians to whom he was writing were being tempted to return to what seemed to be comfort, the comfort and security of the Judaism from which they had come. They were saying, come back, come back, come back. For the Christian to become enamored with anyone or anything in the place of Jesus Christ is to forfeit his kingdom rewards. Don't you go there. Don't you relapse. The Hebrew Christians and all kingdom citizens are to keep God's prophets and angels in eschatological perspective. Jesus is the triumphant king, and his angels serve believers at the present time. So, here's what's happening in verse 5 and following. That the writer of the, to the Hebrew Christians interrupts his exposition to appeal to them to pay more close attention, much more closer attention. He did that in verses 1 through 4. It's the first of these classical um, warning passages in Hebrews. You know, these five red lights. And that was the first one in verses 1 to 4. There is the ever-present danger of drifting back into spiritual immaturity, regressing. How can the believer neglect his great salvation? All right, so here, now the writer of Hebrews in verse 5, he is returning to his exposition regarding the relationship of the king's son, Jesus Christ, to angels. Angels were revered. High place, they were placed highly in, in Jewish theology. Looking through the Old Testament, you can understand that, you know, mediating the law and the, the appearances that they make throughout the Old Testament. So how does the incarnation of Jesus relate to the, his superiority over angels? How does the incarnation of Jesus relate to our share in his destiny as the king's son? So here's where we go then with the following. And now I'm just going to be able to, uh, it's going to be like throwing a stone across the pond. You know, you watch it, you skim it, it doop, 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 doop. all right, 
We're going to have to skim, and I apologize, but I think you will get a grip as you see it and appreciate the pawn. <laughs> Watch it. First of all, we would say in verse 5 that authority was not committed to angels. And that the issue here is that he's greater than the angels because he's the genuine, the ideal man. Secondly, verses 2 through 6 through 8. Authority was originally committed to man. The original intention. Now, he's quoting here, alluding to, uh, quoting from Psalm 8, and which works off Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. What is, you'll notice there are a couple of rhetorical questions in there. Did you see those question marks in your, in your Bible? These rhetorical questions are set up to say to us, that the psalmist is completely astonished at God's intention for man. Wow! It's a wow moment. What have you designed for man? And that you've put all things in subjection under his feet. Now, look at the latter part of verse 8. Watch his thought. Watch the progression. This authority was lost by man. Uh, this is far more serious than fumbling on the one-yard line when you're going for you know, fourth and goal and the game is in the balance. This is the human race, human destiny. Everything is here. So in subjecting all things, the emphasis is in this statement here is on that statement, on all things. That what these words are doing, what happened? Man lost his crown and became a slave of sin. I think it's the saddest scene in Scripture is what transpired. And man's lust for power, wanting more, thinking that God had not given him enough. And so, therefore, the question comes, is why, how does the death of Christ relate to the purpose of man as stated in Psalm 8? And this is really kind of the core issue here. So I'm, I'm going to be very methodical in the way I say this. Man was created to have dominion on this earth. Whoa, paradise. What would it have been? <laughs> Use your sanctified imagination. What God had designed. Man forfeited his right to rule, exercised dominion over the earth because of sin. Authority was relinquished because of sin, and guess who took it? Who recovered the fumble? Satan. Oh, you think you felt sorry for the Falcons. Oh, that is pitiful, pitiful in comparison to this grand sorrowful scene of Satan recovering the fumble. It was a man's disobedience. Romans 8.20 underscores that. But Jesus Christ, through his incarnation, humbled himself and became a little lower than the angels in order to win the right to rule as the last Adam. As the last Adam, all things will be subjected to Christ when he comes to fulfill God the Father's plans for the creation. That's when it will really be all better <laughs> in the ultimate sense. Man will regain the right to rule in the millennial kingdom because Christ, of Christ's death for sin. Mankind's destiny, then, is to be realized in the reign of the king son and the prospect of the servant kings reigning with him in the age to come. 
Now, as this passage progresses on down through verse 10 and following, I'll, I'll come and try to be a little bit more um, uh, summer, uh, summarize it a little more effectively. The suitability of the suffering of Jesus, our captain. That the sovereignty of God is seen in the suffering of Jesus, our captain. The sons of God in the suffering of Jesus Christ, our captain. Notice that in verse 9. Bringing many sons to glory. Jesus did not suffer needlessly. It had purpose. The death of Jesus was the only hope for sinners. How to get that ball back, if you will. The crown, the rule, the reign, the paradise, the kingdom. The salvation of God can be seen in the suffering of Jesus Christ, our captain. Jesus' suffering, if you will then look in verses 10 to 13, that Jesus' suffering was necessary to complete his identification with humanity. He had to become a man. See this qualification? Fully God, fully man. For it says in verse 11, For both he who sanctified and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. This is is describing here the new covenant worshipers, perfected for guilt-free service with God, to God, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. And then look at verses 14 to 16. Jesus' suffering then was necessary in order to disarm the devil. I've attempted by this summary to show you that why was Jesus' death necessary? Why is it Christ alone? Because he's the only one who could have done what needed to be done because of what Adam lost and forfeited. It had to be human. Christ became the last Adam. And he had to be divine for in divinity in God, giving himself in his perfection and his obedience, he's absolutely qualified. All right, with that said, now let's move to the second movement here. I said there were these statements, general statement. All that is uh, submitted under the first. The second statement. Christ alone for justification by faith was obscured by the sacramental system of the Roman Catholic Church. All right, you with me still? I've said before you the glory of the necessity of Christ being the only one who can save us. What we're about to to realize here is that the great clash or collision debate that Luther and the other reformers had with the Catholic Church with regard to Christ was not belief in basic Christology. They were orthodox. They believed he was God. They believed he was man. That was not the debate. What was the debate? What? Why? Well, let's see. Here's a quote. Uh, I got some help. I was listening to a lecture from the professor of Christian theology at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, Stephen Wellam. That's very good. He's, I understand he's produced a book out of this in, for this year, out of this uh, Solus Christus theme. And I read his manuscript a couple of times. Uh, found it to be very beefy. If you go there and do it, just uh, you'd, you'd better have a little little bit of caffeine, you know, He's, uh, to stay with it. But it's it's dense, but it's very helpful. All right, here's what he said: the reformers, in affirming Christ alone, were predominantly opposing 
Rome's sacramental theology that undercut and compromised Christ's all-sufficient work. Get that? Get that? All his all-sufficient work. Now, what was the battleground then? Here's the battleground. I posted here for you the seven sacraments. I think I put these in your notes, didn't I not? The seven sacraments. All right, look at those. Just look at them. In baptism, original sin is removed. In confirmation, the Spirit is given. In the sacrament of penance, mortal sins are forgiven. In the Mass, the priest offers on man's behalf the sacrifice by which sins are atoned for. In the hour of death, he hopes for the unction to be administered by the priest. Should he be married or should he be ordained to the priesthood, the grace required for either of these states of life comes again through the sacraments. You see, it's the merits of Christ then are mediated through the church. Orthodox, Orthodox Christology, yes, in Catholicism. This is what throws Christians even today. Because you can hear a Roman Catholic say, yeah, I believe that. 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 But here's the problem. I can illustrate the problem. Now I'll state the problem. I think you can figure it. I had, uh, we, had, we knew someone recently who had a problem with a certain gas station within about a mile or so of his church. And uh, <clears throat> long story short, it was determined that <clears throat> his car quit on him at the wrong place at the wrong time because it was determined that he had water in the gas. Now, it's been known that there are some places that noted that they do this. I mean, it's stupid. Why, I mean, why are you going to scare away customers? but to try to make the gasoline. Now, what was the problem with that gas water? Was the problem with the gasoline? I mean, if you'd analyze the gasoline itself, it's the real, it was the real thing. I buy gas there, that place. It's real gas. But the water, the water contributes to its creating something else other than that which is going to function in your combust engine, combustible engine. So here it is, that, that, yes, the Catholic Church believed in Orthodox Christology, but it, but it was flawed in the appropriation of Christ's atonement. How do you receive forgiveness? How are you saved? Oh, you see, it's not enough simply to believe he's fully God, fully man, and you can even believe, but, you know, in Philippians 2, God uh, said, have this attitude in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, uh, who... Although he exists in the form of God, did not regard equality with thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, becoming, taking the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of man, being found in appearance of man. He did what? He, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. Okay, good. But how are you going to, through the atonement of Christ, become your salvation? So therefore, Rome's sacramental theology and the sufficiency of Christ's atonement, what it does, it divorces the believer from Christ. That's the way Stephen Wellham puts it. It was a flawed view, therefore, of the work. And it undermined the Catholic sacramental system did and does undermines the sufficiency of Christ's atonement. atonement. You have to go to the church and access, get the merits you need, it's, I've done this with you, didn't I? I've been so 
different ones of you. The Red Bull. I did this that Wednesday night, I think, a while back. It's the Red Bull theology that the salvation, justification and sanctification are essentially the same process in Roman Catholic theology. And so when you go to the sacraments, when you go to Mass, you're accumulating points. And so that's like, shot a Red Bull. Shot a Red Bull. And it's a process over time. Your, your salvation is not guaranteed through life. I mean, you hope for justification at the end, but you can't even be sure of that because there's then purgatory to deal with. So do you not see, therefore, why this became such a critical issue? Now, let me give you some examples of Reformation teaching over against Rome's sacramental theology. Would you like to hear how Christians hundreds of years ago rose up in theological arms to say, no, this is the way in which the atoning work of Jesus Christ becomes the occasion for Christ's righteousness to, do, be the, to declare me righteous with his righteousness. Here, here's the Heidelberg it's a question. This is a catechism. This is a question, as the catechisms often did. Question, answer. Question, answer. By the way, you know, there's a lot to be said for that system. And, uh, well, here's the Heidelberg Catechism. Question 30. Do such then believe in Jesus, the only Savior, who seek their salvation and happiness in saints, in themselves, or elsewhere? Question. Answer. They do not. For though they boast of him in words, yet in deeds they deny Jesus, the only Deliverer and Savior. For one of these two things must be true, that either Jesus is not a complete Savior, or that they who by a true faith receive this Savior must find all things in him necessary to their salvation. You saw the film clip? What will you give them? What will you give them? Jesus. Oh, like that accent. Jesus Christ. That's who you will give them. And so, therefore, therefore, here, I've got another one. I, I found one. I don't have it in your, it's not on the screen. But this was one I thought you might like to hear from the Swiss theologian, uh, Ulrich Zwingli. And I thought you might uh, want to hear how Ulrich Zwingli, in the first Zurich Disputation, a debate over this very issue, here's what he said. We know from the Old and New Testament of God that our only comforter, redeemer, savior, and mediator with God is Jesus Christ, in whom and through whom alone we can obtain grace, help, and salvation, and besides from no other being in heaven or on earth. Is that not clear? Or listen to the ten conclusions of Bern, Bern, Switzerland, 1528. Christ is the only wisdom, righteousness, redemption, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. Hence, it is a denial of Christ when we confess another ground of salvation and satisfaction. As Christ alone died for us, so he is also to be adored as the only mediator and advocate between God and the Father and believers. Therefore, it is contrary to the word of God to propose and invoke other mediators. Case closed. This is the way your spiritual forebears believed in what they said. And they died, I mean, they, many died for this, gave their lives for that belief. Number three, there are, what, six of these altogether. Number three, 
Christ alone is witnessed to by the entirety of Scripture. I don't really, I'm speaking to the choir on this. You've uh, been through these places and you know the sweep of Scripture, but I think we need to pause and appreciate it again. Look, the triune God has a plan. The Bible is the layout of that plan. The divine Son in the triune Godhead is the Father, holy and offended by human sin, and justice must be done. Jesus Christ was appointed to come and to be the Redeemer and pay the price, the penalty, for breaking the breaking of God's law and provide the righteousness that God requires. I have, this is nothing particularly um, uh, tricky here. It's here. Track it. You go through the Old Testament, the, an anticipation and preparation through the whole Old Testament, beginning with that little, little trickle right there in Genesis 3.15, telling to Eve, there's hope, there's hope, and there will be a child. You will bruise, you will crush his head, and your heel will be bitten, but the child is coming. Track it on through. Oh, in my mind's eye, I see these things. Shiloh over there in Genesis 49, but we must move on. Then you go through Leviticus, and you see the sacrifices. We've been reading those, those who are reading through the old, in the Old Testament right now. Sacrifice, sacrifice, what a slaughterhouse. Sin must be atoned for. Sin must be atoned for. Sin must be atoned for. It was just drilled into the psyche of the nation of Israel. You need a Redeemer. You need a Redeemer. You need a Redeemer. And then we find an opening up in the Psalms, which you know Luther just loved the Psalms, called them his little Bible. And you find Psalms like Psalm 22, where you find these words falling off the lips, my God, the lips of the Savior, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Coming right out of David's life, because David was a type. David was a type of Christ. You saw that reflected this morning in what you were doing with uh, the betrayal of Christ by Judas. And so then you move on through the Psalms, and then you go into the you go into the into the prophets and things. Just you really are moving into a vast area of of anticipation and prediction. And Isaiah and fifty three and so forth in the book of of Amos and and so on. And then when you get into the Gospels. What do you have? There is the Redeemer who presents Himself. And what did John say? John the Baptist. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and beautifully portrayed through the Gospels. And then what do you have in the book of Acts? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And the theme of, just track those messages through the book of Acts. Resurrection, resurrection, resurrection. You killed him, you killed him, you killed him. But God raised him, God raised him, God raised him. Just watch, <clears throat> watch that theme. And then when you break into the epistles, what do you see? The cross sets forth the ultimate picture of God's infinite love for us. And the resurrection of that infinite power of God to transform and change us all through the epistles. And then when you come into the book of Revelation, you see the grand consummation of eternal praise. Now, I left out something. I left out those very important biblical covenants that we must see that are woven through this story, through the prophetic text of the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament. Coming all the way from the Abraham covenant, where he gives to in Genesis in chapter 12... And he's going to bless him, and he's going to have seed, and that seed is ultimately, we find in Galatians, going to be Jesus Christ. 
And then we come into that Mosaic Covenant. Oh, the Mosaic Covenant, it just reveals like a serious MRI and shows us that we're eaten up with cancer. It's called sin. But then we come into the Davidic Covenant where God is saying, I'm going to have one to sit on the throne and rule. And oh, did Israel need that covenant because there had been such disappointment in the succession of all of their kings and in the monarchy. Oh, we finally got one who's going to be our Savior. Yeah. Failure, 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 failure. David, the Davidic covenant, one's going to come and sit on the throne of David. Look at that in Jeremiah 31. And then you come into the new covenant in Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 31, where you see that there is this promise of the one who's going to come, and he is going to give his blood, and we celebrate it in the communion table. So there is the Old Testament. There is the scriptures. Let's go to the fourth of these statements, that Christ alone is set forth in Christ's preeminence in everything. Now, because I, I, I spent necessary time in Hebrews 2, I, I just can only I say he is in the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him were all things created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, or the thrones, or the dominions, or rulers, or authorities. All things are created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And boy, Paul just takes you up into the stratosphere in Christology in that passage in Colossians. Well, what it does is that it, it drives home two points in Colossians 2, uh, chapter 1, verse 15 through 20. First, he's the Lord of creation. Jesus Christ was the unique, perfect likeness and manifestation of God. And then, right drafting on that, he says, Jesus Christ is the Lord of the new creation. Jesus Christ was the first to come from dead in true resurrection of life, never to die again. He's qualified. So the necessity of the cross is in the seen in the qualification of Christ. Number five. Christ alone is dramatized in the ordinances of the church. Solus Christus. How? We know. Baptism. I came across an interesting metaphor. I don't know that I've ever put it, heard this before, the way in which it's uh, Malchior Hoffman a Swiss, and a Baptist. And here's the way he pictured baptism. And I'll, you'll see how Christ sits so beautifully in the ordinance of baptism. He takes the, he likens the ordinance of God, baptism, he likens baptism to a wedding ceremony and communion to a wedding feast. So here's the picture of a marriage-like commitment that takes place. Had you thought of baptism like a wedding ceremony? And then we have communion, which is we all gather together and have a real feast. Now, we, we in America, we tend to don't really feast like they do in some places of these wedding ceremonies. Now, I wish I could say to you that everything was A-OK -okay with the Reformers and baptism. This is where some problems, to say the least, develop because of different views on baptism. For example, now, I'll treat this more in my Reformation class starting in March. But Luther said, we baptize infants and give them a promise that they may produce saving faith. 
I will, you know, I read some, I have some commentaries, uh, um, R.C.H. Linsky, those of you who are familiar with him, he's a Lutheran commentator, I, he was a good go-to commentary series, but sometimes you weren't, he's a Lutheran, you weren't too clear as he's saying, is, does he, is they believing in baptismal regeneration? Luther could get a little fuzzy, but we know that he believed with justification by faith alone. Well, I'll leave you with that, but Zwingli said we baptize infants to show they belong to the Christian community. So there is the view with regard to baptism. Now, uh, what, we're going to, what we would see in the Reformation is that this commitment to infant baptism on the part of Luther and the part of Zwingli and Calvin. Now, the Anabaptists, the rebaptizers, that's the, what the word Anabaptist means, the rebaptizers. Uh, and a footnote, I'm not saying that the Baptists come from the Anabaptists. They don't. The Baptists originated in England later on in the 1600s. 1700s. But the Anabaptists, they had some things right. They didn't have everything right, but neither did all the other reformers. But they were, they were dogged on this, that, um, and they actually resisted this Anabaptist uh, moniker because they said, we're not rebaptizing. You weren't baptized in the first place. It was an infant. And this is genuine believer's baptism the first time. And I read in one source uh, here, I think it was Lutzer in his book on Rescuing the Gospel, that there were more Anabaptists who were drowned, beheaded, martyred for their refusal to uh, deny the belief in baptism, adult baptism, more than Christians who died in the Roman persecutions. It had by the thousands. All right, so there are some of those tensions that you you could say. Did they did they believe these things uh, deeply? Now, it's hard for 20th century people to think. I mean, you could really get that serious about baptism. But I will tell you, say this: that the reason that uh, Zwingli and Luther were set against the Anabaptists is that they saw that infant baptism was the means by which you came into the empire, into the Holy Roman Empire. And so it was, it was the ticket into it, and it was kind of the glue that held that Holy Roman Empire together. And they were, con they were very confused on their church state. Uh, some of the reformers didn't help us there, some of them, that confusing the church, meshing them together. All right, that's, that's another issue. All right, and then what about the communion table? Solus Christus in the communion table. This is my body. We have the presence of Christ. Now, again, here, I don't want to leave you thinking that everything was fractured and that the Reformers just had these um, theological food fights over the... the <laughs> they did believe that Christ was central in the, in the ordinances, in the sacraments. Of, they, they, they believed in that they were agreed that were just two. There weren't seven sacraments. But Luther and Zwingli had some uh, headbutting over this. Zwingli, the Swiss Reformer. He believed that it was a memorial. That's what the communion table was. Luther said, no. He believed, as Lutheran theology does to this day, in consubstantiation, that he believed that the humanity of Christ, by virtue of the glorified Christ, that to some degree it, uh, it um, manifested itself through permeated even the, the, the deity, the omnipresence of Christ. So in some sense, you actually have the humanity of Christ present at the table. So Christ is not in the elements like in transubstantiation, where you know the Catholic Church believes that through a miracle, 
that the, the blood, the, the cup, the wine, the uh, bread is transformed into the actual blood and the actual body of Christ. Now, Luther stepped away from that, but he believed in consubstantiation, that Christ is, he is uh, with, in, uh, around, by, beside. <laughs> it's a little hard to figure him out on that, but he was dogmatic on it. Zwingli saying, no, it's a... And then now Calvin has a, had another view, which are some of our covenant brothers and sisters in Christ see that, well, there is this presence of Christ. We do, Calvin said, we really do encounter Christ in the bread and wine. And so you say, how? Is it, no, not in transubstantiation, not in consubstantiation, but there is a promise that there is some special presence of Christ there. All right, I'm not going to proceed with that, but I, want, I, I hope that I've not distracted you with, these, uh, with the fractiousness that occurred among those reformers. But it was this, though, in these ordinances and the sacraments, Christ, central, Christ, Christ. And then finally, number six, Christ alone faces its foes in our day. I'm going to uh, just sum it up in this way. You remember that opening paragraph? that I said to pick up on? Follow me now. What is Christ, what is it Christ alone? How should it therefore impact us today? I submit the following. Because of solus Christus, because of Christ alone, these are not in your notes. We are not our own. We belong to him. We're bought with a price. And this, my dear friends, is in 1 Corinthians 6. It's the place where Paul drove this stake in the ground. Why would you engage in immorality? Why would you join yourself to a prostitute? Why would you do this when you are joined to Jesus Christ in union with him? Secondly, because of solus Christus, we are part of his body. We're connected to the vine. We're connected to one another. 1 Corinthians 12. The centrality of Christ. We all share a relationship that is so important. Gifts, the ways distributed them. So that they ultimately, and all together, what do they do? They manifest Jesus Christ, his presence in his people. Thirdly, because of solus Christus, we have our identity in Christ. Where do we want to go for identity? Oh, my. An indoctrination campaign is well underway in our culture. Race, class, and gender. Everything is identity politics. Want to think of race first. Race. Well, I am. I'm black. I'm white. I'm yellow. Whatever. And, and race. Now we've got this, um, this thing is morphed into gender instead of sex. There are only two sexes, but still class, race, class. What does the Christian say? I'm in Christ. That's my identity. My sexuality is not my identity. Christ is my identity. You start there. Things fall in place. I'm in Christ. Fourthly, because of solus Christus, we have the power to break free from the old life. How? When we turn from idols, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, and we come into the kingdom of God, we come to Christ, we're in union with Christ. There's that turning. There is that metanoia, that turning, pivoting, coming, and receiving the gift of eternal life. What happens? We are free, free now in our old life to, from our old life to serve Christ. 
Why? Because of sola, because of solus Christus, my my values, my decision making, my core convictions are centered in the Word of Christ. He told his disciples. You're going to be led into all the truth, but it's going to be all oh, these red letter editions. Oh, they take us off in the wrong direction. Okay, you got one, don't throw it away. But Christ speaks all through his word. And so that's where I get my mindset. That's how I then come to be, walk, be able to walk in the spirit. For I get this spirit, this mindset, the way of thinking, the way I form my judgments. What's important, what's not important? Six. By solus Christus, all things work together for good to them that love Christ. Romans 8, 28. No chance, no chance. You see how the centrality of Christ, how it will come and pulsate in the midst of the way I look at what happens. I drive away from a service station and realize when I get home that I must have dropped my, my wallet, my credit cards at the place. Is that chance? 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 I go to the doctor and he diagnoses me, diagnoses that I have a tumor in my lungs. Is this chance? Is that the luck of the draw? I will trust in the invisible hand of God, though it frowns and though it smiles. I know that all things in Christ work together for good. See Christ? Solus Christus. You see, you're thinking about suffering and disappointment, pain, problems. You have an entirely different focus. God, help us, enable us to think so. Number seven, because of solus Christus, my future is fixed on Christ. Therefore, I discipline myself for godliness because I know where I'm going. I have that hope. It's an objective hope. And what do I choose to do? I choose to give up things, to do things, to order my life, to live accordingly. Discipline yourself for godliness, 1 Timothy chapter 5. How so? Because my hope is in Christ. See solus Christus? It's everywhere, in everything. And so therefore I would conclude by just saying this, that I had a professor, and Beth knows who this was, we had a professor, Frank Sells, he's with the Lord now. Uh, what a Bible teacher. Whoa, my, I had some of the best Bible teachers, uh, I thought, and I still think I had some of the best you could, you could have. And you got there after Frank Sells, I think, didn't you? He was long gone by the time you were there. And, uh, but I just remember him hammering and hammering away on this all the time. Christ-centeredness. He was just show up in every, <laughs> every place. Christ-centeredness. What is this? That the cross of Christ in the empty tomb should define my life, Period. God's infinite love for me and power to change. I can change. I can become a new person. I don't have to live the same kind of attitudes and values that I had before, but I can change because of Christ's love and his resurrection power. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for the Lord Jesus Christ. Keep us faithful, Lord, to death, to death, to death. And, Lord, then to see you, oh, what is that going to be like? Oh, oh, Lord, our pitiful little minds, we can't, we can't even get near that. But we trust you. You've told us that you've gone to prepare a place for us, Jesus Christ, that where he is, we will be also. Thank you, Lord. In Christ's name, amen.